Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the new Mainstream Podcast, where we explore the impact of multicultural consumers on marketing and media. I'm your host, Mario Carrasco, and co-founder of ThinkNow. Excited to introduce our guest today, Mario Amaro, founder and CEO of Ease. Welcome, Mario. Hey, Mario. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's going to be weird saying Mario and Mario back and forth. This is the first time for me <laughs> interviewing another Mario. <laughs> um, yeah, awesome, man. Well, excited to have you on. I know a little bit about you know your backstory, but before we kind of dive into Ease and the um, the issues that you're solving, um, let's talk a little bit about your journey. How did how did you come to found Ease? What's your background? Yeah, so I'm um, originally born out of Houston, Texas. Uh, so I'm fifth generation Texan. Family's been here forever. We could probably go back further by, uh, than five generations, but that's really all we can track. We kind of lost track, you know, uh, of our family tree at that point. But yeah, I found it ease, man. Basically, to solve my own problem as a, as a Latino growing up in the Houston area. Um, unfortunately, I, I had to leave my community in order to access care. So um, you know, I, I never really understood that problem on why do Latinos not open up practices or you know, why don't Latino clinicians return to their communities and open up businesses? And um, so from there, you know, like that, that was always a problem that I knew existed, but didn't know how to solve or didn't know why it existed. And, you know, going through the military, I spent uh, eight years active duty serving as what's called a flight dock. And pretty much what that means is that we take care of the people who operate aircraft or, take, you know, um, maintenance the aircraft, fix the aircraft, keep the aircraft operational. Um, we make sure those people are healthy so they can actually complete those flight missions. And so I traveled all throughout multiple different countries, taking care of them, making sure they were healthy. I loved it. I tell everyone, literally, it was my job to have a backpack and a computer, and I would get on the back of a helicopter, airplane, or whatever it was, and I would go from country to country just to make sure those people were always, always healthy and you know, mission first. Were, so were, were always. Were you yeah. trained in the military, or did you did you have some background, or like how how did that? How did that work? Like, yeah. I, I, I'm like curious, like, how do, how do you become a, a flight doc? Yeah, so there's different variations, right? So you can 100% go through a civilian school, um, you know, like medical school, and then go into the military, which is called PGY-1, if you're, if you're a physician, right? And so, um, or you can go through the enlisted side and get specialized training that, you know, depends on what scale and scope that you're able to get. Um, it could very much function like a physician assistant in the civilian world. Uh, that you're doing a similar type of role in, you know, uh, in military. And so that's kind of, I would say, was equivalent to my scope. You know, I would go from different countries and usually be by myself. There was never anyone else with me. And so it was up to me in order to kind of provide that care to them. Awesome. And and how did, how did like that experience, um, you know, coupled with with the issues in Houston, like how did how did that how did that come together? Your your flight doc experience, traveling country by yourself, and then your experience growing up, like how did that come together? Yeah, so after getting out of the military, my worlds collided, right? And where it was me now discovering why clinicians weren't able to start their own practices or open up their own businesses, how strong the hospital system was when it came to keeping us employed. Uh, so a lot of times clinicians get stuck. You know, most of the time people don't really understand this. Majority, you know, black and Latino clinicians have the highest debt. 
They typically have to go to, you know, more schooling than others in order to become a clinician, um, you know, because it's like low grades. They take, you know, different, you know, longer paths in order to actually get accepted, you know. And so because of that, they, they get stuck, which what what's referred to as the golden handcuffs, meaning that you will you will get an employee job and you would kind of like stay there. And then now you may have wanted to go back into your community, but now you're like looking for tenure and, you know, you're trying to get like a a, a, a kind of academia type position there, whether, you know, it's uh, uh, more of a, a job where you can be respected for all the hard work that you've done, right? And obviously, paycheck security is a big point. Um, so this is really what stemmed the, the concept of starting your own practice. I, I started to learn more now that I was in the civilian side of it, of how difficult it was and how many people who look like me didn't actually have the education or the funds or even the te- technology in order to make that, you know, kind of dream a reality for them. And so that's kind of where ease came about. And so like, when I think about um, private practice, my assumption is that you're making more money than working for a hospital. Is that not necessarily the case? Yeah, you know, it's, I would say 100%. No, that's not the case. You know, Um, I I think early on, you're definitely going to make more money going to the hospital. You know, that's just reality because you're not having to do a lot of the different things in order to set up a business, right? And so we all know as business owners, most of the time, you know, they're, you're not having immediate, like, you know, cash flow positive, you know, at day zero or day one, you know. Um, but and, and but that's kind of like what the hospital systems pitch to, to the clinicians is mm. like, you don't have to do any of this. You know, you can start making money immediately, but they're not telling you the real story. You're going to work your butt off. You're going to work constantly. You're not going to have any time for anyone else or anybody else. You're, you're never going to have the ability to form relationships with your patients because now they're telling you what to do and how to be able to treat your patients. And so it just, it like r- literally rips every passion that you had for healthcare slowly away from you over time. And so that's kind of like the reality of private practice versus hospital system. And so I, I think one of the things I find most fascinating about your business model is kind of the intention behind it. Like connect for us, like, you know, your experience in Houston and then, you know, there's experiences here in Los Angeles, other metro, you know, big metropolitan areas where typically community of color has to have to travel for care. And so how is that linked in your opinion to this hospital system and making it difficult for, clinicians to open up private practices like what's what's that connection there yeah so i think the the early concept and or, or at least how it was marketed right because this is like a marketing focus it was it was a centralization saying that hey look you don't have to worry about how to discover a, a doctor we have it centralized for you so that it's easily and accessible for everyone that was the pitch right but realistically when you centralize care you actually were able to create more walls or more barriers from people being able to access that care and so and and if you think about it it's healthcare is not a centralized place literally healthcare is everything that we do right and and so being able to have true accessibility to where you live to where you work to all the things that you do right it's like that is true accessibility to care so what happens with the community Latinos and, 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 and black population, they typically have to leave their neighborhood or the care that is there is not kind of like top notch quality care. Right. It's usually like, you know, like public health systems or other type of systems that are kind of like secondary or like you're thinking, you know, 
here is something that you we know you need it. So let's give you something that's kind of not the best, but we did it right for you. And so the concept of, of, of private practice is about, look, there are people who come from your community, no doubt, that become clinicians, right? And so how can we get them back into the community to be able to provide that equitable care to you? So that way, you know, you as a patient are able to receive the care from someone who understands your culture, understands your language, understands the needs of the community. But then at the same time, that clinician is able to maintain that passion, make some money, obviously, because this is a business. And so they're able to generate, you know, a good, profitable, sustainable business. And then also feel reconnected to their community that they came from. One of the most interesting threads I remember reading from you was kind of like the history of how healthcare used to be driven primarily by private practices in the community and then hospital system took over. Like, tell us about that. Cause I mean, can you like, I don't know if you remember that thread, but like you, you, you really put it together succinctly. Like what's the history of that? Like, how did we move from private practices as like your neighborhood doctor to these massive hospital systems that we all know now today. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, this is referred to as hospital consolidation. It, it, it kind of occurred probably like starting in the seventies. Uh, you started to see a lot of like legislation and different changes that were really being pushed at that time towards like, you know, insurance products, which we refer to as HMO. Um, so that's kind of where all this started. And then from the shift from HMO, it started to be implemented during like the Reagan time. And um, they were really trying to draw more people into hospital systems in order to create that centralization of care. And um, obviously, the, the goal of controlling costs, but really it was about giving you know, people more access um, who were already making the money. So insurance payers, hospital systems, all those things. And what kind of happened in that time frame is that hospitals started to notice that they didn't have the footprint. They didn't have any of the ability to, to, to be able to quickly gain access to patients, right? And so they, their route was, okay, if we can't build it fast enough, let's go ahead and buy it, right? Mm. And so they slowly started buying all these practices that were independent, that were profitable, right? So this is why I refer to as the M&A wave or mergers and acquisition wave. So right? private, pra- private practices that grew big enough to be on these companies' radars that are like, oh, okay, this, this person has a sizable, you know, membership or patient base, right? Yep. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then what, what they started doing some really interesting tactics is that, you know, during the early parts, they, they made you, it used to be any clinician that was in the neighborhood had hospital privileges, meaning that if one of your patients was admitted to the hospital, you don't, you didn't have to be working for the hospital. You can still go in and see your patient in that hospital and then know what's happening with their care. They get discharged and you could follow them up in your practice, right? Mm. They, HMO eliminated that, right? Because it set rules that now you have to be credentialed within that payers network, within that hospital system in order to gain hospital privileges. So you were not in network with that hospital. If your patients got admitted, you had zero clue what was happening. Right. And so think about how that impacts quality of care, how that impacts the ability for a clinician to to be able to understand what's happening with their patient. Right. And so that was like a huge, huge barrier that separated private practice. So if you couldn't track your patients in the hospital system, that meant that eventually your hot, your patients would get lost or stolen. Right. And so that was a good tactic for them to be able to kind of like bring on other clinicians decrease the revenue, decrease the retention that they were having for their patients, and ultimately either sell 
to the hospital system or just shut their doors. And and was so like was there a I don't know if the data goes back far enough, but do we see a decline? Oh yeah, of 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 health outcomes in communities of color because of that consolidation. One hundred percent, and that's the beauty behind this. And so there's so much data of consolidation. The the, the last um, data uh, or study that was done this that did it really really well was Rice University in Houston. They did a huge study on decentralization of care with. Um, what's referred to as HCO or healthcare organization consolidation. And so um, they pretty much like laid it out. This does not improve health outcomes. This is actually detrimental to certain demographics of patients, right? And then overall, it's actually increasing healthcare GDP, right? So it's driving up costs because there's no longer any ability for market, uh, you know, like free market opportunities, other businesses to be able to coexist in order to provide more value to the patients so they can decide who do I choose for my care? And so, um, yeah, there's, there's tons of data, but I mean, it, it traditionally does impact marginalized communities like, you know, black or Latino communities. And so, so tell us like, how is ease solving for that? Yeah. So ease pretty much our goal is to make it easy for clinicians to be independent. Right. And so we're not saying that hospital systems don't work. Clearly, they're, they're very good, you know, surgery centers, a whole bunch of other types of inpatient care, whether it's critical care, things like that. You know, they're, they're very beneficial to society. However, that should not be the only route for a clinician. Right. Clinicians should be able to have the opportunity to be, you know, small business entrepreneurs. And we want to create that, that pathway for them to say, all right, do I go and become an employee or can I open up my business? And both things should be equally accessible, right? And it just is easy for them to make it happen. And so that's the goal behind Ease. You know, we're, we're doing it a little differently, whereas um, we're using embedded fintech or financial technology in order to support the growth of this future of private practice, um, which will enable so many different things, such as, you know, having access to cash flow, um, you know, having access to be able to support the startup capital of your new business, um, having the access to be able to grow and expand that business because it is banking embedded, there's payments embedded, there's eventually there'll be loans and things like that. So that's why we believe um, private practice will make a comeback. And, um, you know, we want to support to be clinicians to be independent again. And, and, and why, um, why start with fintech? Is that, is that what you saw one of the biggest barriers to opening up your own private practice? Yeah. So a lot of the barriers is, is it's a, it's a huge problem because it is a compliant business. This is not, you know, what Shopify did for, for retailers, online retailers was incredible. They, they built out infrastructure that allowed anyone to become an entrepreneur in minutes and start selling their product in minutes. That does not exist in healthcare. And the reason why is because there are so many regulatory kind of hurdles that clinicians will have to jump through. And they also have an individual licensing board. And those licensing boards, there are multiple in every single state. And there are 50 states. So if you think about it, there is so much legal complexity that they have to navigate through in order to get a business up and running. And so we are automating every single one of those steps in order to first start your practice and then grow your practice and market that practice and, and eventually grow it to, you know, hopefully multi-million dollar business, which is possible. Um, so that's kind of like the, how we're thinking about the, you know, the future of, of supporting them as independent business owners. And, and so you, you started, um, you started with mental health, right? Therapists. Yeah. Um, what, what was the thinking behind that? 
Yeah, so we actually just went with the traditional market uh, using data to support why we chose a market. And so we had a wait list during our early MVP stage and the primary person, the uh, demographic of customer on our wait list was therapists. So it was yeah. kind of like a no brainer. It's just like, let's listen to the data. You know, therapists are more interested in our product right now. Uh, let's go live with them. But there are also some some other reasons why, you know, it even made more sense to continue, uh, which was just like, you know, um, therapists are, are it's, it's, it's a little easier to solve when it comes to compliance just because um, there's no what's referred to as ancillary services, so labs, imaging, medication, all these other things. Um, so it made sense to really target that market up front. And is the goal to eventually get into medical and, and provide those ancillary services? Yeah, so we actually go live with medicine in October for a little beta, um, and then we will open it up. Uh, we plan to open around like February, March of next year, completely to all physicians who want to build their practices with ease. That's awesome. And, and, and across all 50 states, or are you launching on certain states first? Yeah. So right now, um, we are across all 50 states. Um, you know, for some of our fintech products, we're doing it state to state. Um, you know, not everything is available for, for some of the fintech products up front to all, to all uh, parties. Starting in September, the, the end of September will be open completely for all therapists. And so literally our goal is to make, you know, uh, building a private practice happen in minutes. You know, right now we're about six weeks, but traditionally it takes about eight months to a year. And so we brought that down to six weeks. Now we're hopefully bringing it down to 10 minutes or less. That's amazing. Um, tell us, tell us about the ease fellowship that that's, that seems like to be one, you know, pretty, one of the most popular kind of things you recently launched. Yeah, so the East Fellowship, this is our go-to-market strategy, right? Like, you know, whenever you, you launch a new product, you have to kind of think about a, a unique go-to-market. How are you going to acquire your first customers? How are you going to be able to onboard them and, and be able to have them kind of really use your product so you're able to learn from it? And so we utilize the fellowship concept, which is a cohort-based uh, you know, program. And so we brought, brought in 50 therapists in January to, to build their businesses. They all equally wanted to start their practices from the ground up. And so that meant over that course of six weeks, they were going to build and learn how to build, you know, and then eventually at the end of six weeks, launch their business, right? Launch their practice. And so we gave them all the tools they needed. Um, we successfully launched um, 34. It was 32 originally, but then uh, we launched 34 um, you know, therapists from that cohort. And so pretty successful. It's over 60% conversion. Um, you know, and we, we, we did it really well. We did it again the second time. We just launched it an X50, uh, last week. And so now we're, we're getting ready to be able to open it up for everyone, right? We, we took all the lessons learned from the first fellowship, iterated on the product, put it live again for the second fellowship, you know, being able to work out with the kinks, bugs or anything like that. And now we're ready to rock and roll, man. We believe that we have a really solid product. That's awesome. Um, and, and obviously, you know, one of the, one of the things I think I was most impressed by was like the diversity of the cohorts, mm -hmm. which is pretty incredible, especially from a mental health space. There's really a lack of um, mental health prof professionals of color, even though communities of color need therapists and that culturally relevant care is so critical. Like, tell, how did you how did you attract diverse therapist to apply for the cohort like what was that strategy yeah you know i i, I credit it to to us kind of being a diverse team you know also but like you know talking about it up front i think sometimes some founders in, in the mental health space are just periods you know founders in general we tend to kind of like want to put ourselves in the box and we don't talk about 
real life things that impact us. And so I think that the people who do follow me on socials or things like that, they see how, how vocal I am about this, you know, the, the, this, the concept of it, healthcare not being equitable for black and Latinos, you know, or other people's like, that, that come from lower socioeconomic statuses. And so I think people resonate with that. They, they are able to pick it up and be like, I want to be part of this. And so that's probably how we acquired a lot of our early customers is because we, we discuss it. We're not afraid to discuss it. And we're very upfront about it because it's a core belief. The belief is these clinicians that are unable traditionally to go into private practice because not access to capital, they they have so much high debt, right? And they have no education on how to start a business will finally be able to go back to their communities to start practices if they have access to capital, right? They, they have access to education, right? And you don't have to worry about that paycheck security because we solve it with fintech for the cash flow because of the, all the high debt, things like that they traditionally worry about. Yeah, what, what I love about that, I mean, I think it's like, um, it's interesting, right? We, we work, I, I think you represent um, a new wave of startups that are embracing diversity and inclusion at the core and what's great about it is like you go to your website and it's not necessary it's not saying this is for diverse therapists this is for diverse medical professionals your ease is just talking about being able to set up a private practice quickly but i think um a learning and what you're saying is like the diverse team number one right like we talk about that with clients like we work in the opposite spectrum, right? We're working with Fortune 1000s, traditionally not diverse founders, not diverse teams. But one of the most critical components to success is just having diverse people on the, you know, on the marketing team if you're going to do marketing, right? Like otherwise, people sniff out inauthenticity so quickly. You know? Yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely you know it happens often in the in the um, healthcare community. Um, it's startups, you know, they'll they'll have they'll they'll pretty much you know um, put different you know minority images and stock images of, of people on their website, and their team is completely doesn't look like that at all, you know. Yeah. And then they'll they'll praise themselves. They'll praise themselves about how you know inclusive they are and things like that, right? And but none of them look like that. So it's just like, to me, it's very clear to show the intent behind it, right? They, 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 they lack the diversity internally. So they're having to, to showcase that. Or it's also disingenuous because they're using it as a marketing ploy. They're using it as a tool in order to kind of capture that particular audience while having no understanding of that audience at all because they are not it. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, that's, yeah, I mean, like, so, you know, one of the companies that we work with, and I I praise them a lot because they do good work, and most of the people in multicultural marketing know that is Target. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Target, obviously not the medical space, but a retailer that does multicultural marketing well. And I remember talking to someone in their insights team about that, and he told me that something that really changed the way that I thought about diversity and inclusion, because... Diversity and inclusion and marketing get lumped together when, in fact, they're two very separate things. However, the way that Target talked about it, he brought it together in the sense he was like, look, the way that Target thinks about it is like, we have stores in all these communities that we want to reach, all these diverse communities we want to reach. And instead of us trying to market 
to these people like we don't know them. The people that work in our retail stores are the people, are the multicultural people we want to reach. And so they marry their diversity and inclusion in marketing by making sure they're making them happy as target employees on the store level, but also listening to them like and getting their feedback because they're reaching back out to those same communities and trying to sell them products. And I think um, I think that's just like a really good representation, right, of of how companies can that maybe don't necessarily have diverse team can listen to um, diverse communities um, without just, like you said, putting up pictures of of diverse people on their website, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a checklist now. It literally is a checklist that they go by, right? And, and yeah. it's kind of like you know how how some people created a checklist for like accessibility. Now there's like a checklist for like diversity, you know. And right. this is like we're we're checking this box. We're we're cool now, you know. I think actually there was a uh, um a funny like uh, TikTok uh, piece that was being shared about like a, a Pepsi ad. Where it was a guy uh, eating barbecue. I'm not sure if you if you saw this one. This is like the most recent ad. It was a uh, and it was a guy eating barbecue. So it was a white guy eating barbecue, and his hands were clean. He looked all professional, GQ'd out. And then on the other side of the billboard was, was a black man eating barbecue, and he's like he had like um like barbecue sauce all over his fingers, and it was like all over his mouth. There was like a big old like rack of ribs, and it was like so clear right? The intent behind it, right? Like what they were trying to do, but at the same time, the lack of understanding culturally of like how this is unacceptable, right? And so it was all both in the same ad. And so it was, it's incredible that again, it's the people who are doing this don't have any relevance. They don't understand the concept of what things you need to be able to promote. And I think that also spills over into healthcare is because you're, you're just saying, you know, like words, oh yeah, get healthy, get fitness, you know, work out this much time a day with what time, right? You work, you know, the hours, you know, maybe you're standing constantly for your job, right? Or, you know, you have to come home and cook your kids, you know, are, are, are you know, maybe your whole family lives with you where you're going to be able to work out at home. Maybe you live in a concrete jungle where there's no, you know, places in order to run. There's no parks, right? All these concepts, it's like it doesn't relate because you don't understand. You don't understand what it's like to live like us, where the communities we come from. But someone who does will, and they'll be able to modify things in order to kind of like fit into the health of what is your surroundings? Where do you live? How can we really come up with something that makes sense for you? So, so to take the analogy, right, I'm like these big hospitals, I think of as big companies, um, right, trying to reach diverse communities. In your opinion, like, it, are there steps like these big hospitals can do to better serve communities? And if so, like, what, what are those? Like, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, for the people listening in that come from big companies, what can they do to, re- to reach diverse communities? Yeah, so I would say the, the, the biggest thing right here is, is understanding the, the now the future, right? The future is partnerships as opposed to ownership, meaning mm-hmm. that just because a, a, um, you know, a clinic is in your area, right? They, they are necessarily, you don't have to own them in order to own that funnel. You know, in, in order to make sure that those patients are constantly coming to your business, right? And, and then right. they're coming into you, utilizing this, the, the, the stuff that you need them to like, that pays the most, right? Like whether it's inpatient care or surgeries, things like that, that you're trying to get them into, right? Because that's how primary care is utilized by health systems. It's like, it's like, we know we're going to lose money on this. 
but we have access to you that when you need a higher acuity service, meaning you need something that's going to pay us, that surgery, you're already part of our network. So we'll win then. It will pay off for all the loss that we had from you being primary care. And so I think that, that we need to let that go. That whole loss leader concept of, of you know trying to maintain those relationships is like be part of the community, partner with people who are within the community, and then be able to understand how to service them around that. It's just like this is this centralization concept, consolidation concept has to go away if we really want to understand div- true DEI, you know, um, and, and, and it's really the only way to, to bring it back, you know. I, I love that because that's, yeah, you're spot on partnership, right? And I think about, you know, in my world, um, I mean, I think of Target again, right? I mean, they, they do incredible partnership with diverse founders, right? I don't know if you've heard of like Millennial Loteria, Um he, uh, it, it, someone that updated the traditional, um, Latino game of Loteria for millennials, right. And they're funny cards. I was an early supporter like three, four years ago, but now the founder, I forget his name, but he's in all the target stores, right? Like they partnered with him. Um, they didn't buy his product. They like supported him, gave him his own end caps and he sold out and every target across the US. Like it's incredible. And now he's branching out into Gen Z Meloteria. Um, but you're right, like partnering with people in the community that have cultural cachet is so important. And I think it works in the hospital setting and it extends out into corporate America, right? Where you don't necessarily have to own it. You don't have to rip it off and put it in your website, like because people <laughs> smell that BS. Um, actually partnering with people is the best way to reach these these consumers. Yeah, 100%. And, and they do partner, you know, hospital systems, they know this, you know, they have some brilliant people in the marketing departments and things like that, that understand these things, but they're partnering with other big brands, right? Mm. They're partnering with like other big employers in this in the system, right? Thinking like, this is, this is our way to market. This is our way to, to understand. But when, when you're partnering with other similar large enterprises who are also disconnected from DEI and are trying to figure out themselves, it's not going to work. You have to partner with the small guys, the small units, the ones that are grinding it out in the streets that have that better connection with the community in order to really understand the needs of the community. And this applies all over the place, whether you're selling a consumer product or you're selling, you know, software, whatever it is, right? Like it's, it's all the similar concept. People are boots on the ground. And if you have, you know, a whole bunch of steps between you and that person that's boots on the ground, you're never going to learn what the ground needs, but the people that live on that ground, you know? For sure. Um, and so are you like, do you have any special, uh, well, you mentioned it already, having a diverse founder team. I mean, I know um, having clinicians from diverse backgrounds is important. Like, do you have any specific, you know, takeaways for marketers like that you can share from your experience reaching out to diverse therapists or diverse clinicians that they could maybe implement in their businesses or brands? Yeah. So I think that sometimes what happens is that we get caught up from a marketing perspective of, of repeating the generic things because we know some of the generic things work. Right. And um, so when, when you're marketing to, you know, uh, a diverse kind of population, like, you know, like if it's a diverse therapist or someone, you know, I, I, I really want to be intentional about onboarding. For example, we don't have a lot of South Asian uh, participants in our fellowship and in, 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 in our you know practices period. And to me, 
Um, that's because one, I'm, I'm not South Asian, right? I, I don't understand. Like I, I need someone in order who can adapt and, and know how to target them. What are their, what is the value being created for them? Why are they want to be business owners, right? What are the things behind it? And so it's really first noticing those, those gaps that exist for yourself and then kind of bringing in the, those individuals who can fill in those gaps in order to really retarget right and make sure that the message is relevant um so that's what i would say that's what i've been doing is having relevant conversations with them that it's not just hey this is a feature this is what the feature does it's more so this is a value that's going to be created from this right and um some people it, w- it won't resonate with everyone right and so um i think it's just learning and adapting and, and making those changes over time so that's kind of like my advice is just like you always, always being relevant to who that individual is and making sure that you are aware of those gaps. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that honestly with yourself, right. Too, like so many times brands or companies feel uncomfortable saying what you just said, like we don't do well with South Asian, like just acknowledging that as a good step forward, right? Like yeah. we don't serve X community good. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a great lesson. Um, so Believe it or not, we're almost coming up on our time here. What what's what's next for Ease? I know you mentioned rolling it out to clinicians. Anything you wanna you wanna share here about what's next? What's in store? Yeah, so what's in store is that we're completely like switching our messaging about what we do. You know, um, in early on, we've been going in through stages of like this is kind of how we've been building Ease. Um, so starting at, at the end of September, we're going to start talking about about like. Um, what exactly is a centralized service of ease? So that is, we were becoming um, the only corporate card that's made for private practices. And so um, the concept of a corporate card has been really, um, you know, kind of like welcomed in the startup community because we've seen the growth of it, like with companies like Brex, Divi, Ramp, you know, Um, but it hasn't been um, really, you know, really brought to to affect our, uh, you know, brought to the world of healthcare. And so that is something that we're going to be going live with. I believe this is going to help so many black and Latino clinicians who traditionally didn't have accessibility to cash flow, the accessibility to startup capital in order to get access to starting their own practice. And so this is really going to change the way, um, you know, we as people of color really go after starting their own businesses and so we're excited about becoming that corporate car for private practices that finally gets more people to start private practices. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think across the board, I think it's great. You did your research and you understood what the gap was. Cause like we've done work, for example, with Facebook among diverse small business owners, people that have, you know, small businesses that they launch almost completely on Facebook. The number one hurdle was cash banking. And um, what was really cool, the research we did with them let Facebook to open, you know, start a a banking division where you can now go onto Facebook and if you're a, a small retailer, just bank right there. So um, it's great that you're solving that for the healthcare space. Exactly. And it's the same thing, the same exact thing. You ask anybody, uh, you know, black or Latino or really anyone from a lower social status and you're saying, hey, why don't you start a business? First thing I'm going to say, with what money? The second right. thing I say, with 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 how? Like, how am I going to know how to do this, right? And so, like, education and, and access to capital are two core things that apply for all small business owners. And for some reason, people think just because they're clinicians and they're educated that they don't have those same problems. No, they do. And so, you have to be able to solve it immediately at day zero. Yeah, and and sometimes they have it's a bigger problem, right? Because of how much debt they've accumulated. 
hundred percent. That's why they go to the hospital system because that paycheck security, they have so much debt that kicks on as soon as you're done with, with training and you got to start paying that, but you have no cash. What's going to happen? You know what I mean? You're going to, you're going you're gonna to further hurt yourself. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, thanks for coming on Mario. It's, uh, really cool to learn more about ease. If people want to learn more about ease, follow you, what's, what's the best way to follow you on social? Yeah. So we're at ease practice, um, on all social. So it doesn't matter if you're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, even Facebook, we're ease practice across the board. So at ease practice, uh, if you want to go to our website to learn more, it's at easepractice.com. So easepractice.com is our website. And um, yeah, if you want to follow me and kind of hear my healthcare rants, you can follow me at uh, MarioATX underscore MD. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you having me on the show, uh, Mario. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Mario. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to everyone listening in. To get more multicultural insights, Check us out at thinknow.com and follow us on social media. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Final thank you to our producer, Lucas Martinez, who created our intro music and makes our podcast sound great. To email him, reach out to martinez.lucas.a at gmail.com.